Hi, this is Ariana for the Well Mama podcast. My guest today is Florence Gillet, founder of Beyond Body Image and certified eating psychology coach. Florence helps chronic dieters restore a healthy relationship with food and their bodies by combining strategies from nutrition science and eating psychology. What I admire most about Florence is her brutal honesty about the diet and fitness culture. She explains that one can be healthy at any size and says that achieving body neutrality is more about transforming our mental perception rather than changing our physical appearance. A lot of her work revolves around helping parents not pass on fatphobic, weight-biased values to younger generations in a world where kids are bombarded by social media images of quote-unquote perfection. But I don't want to unveil everything here, so let's get to my chat with Florence. So is it good enough quality-wise? Yes, we're good. We're good to go. Let's let's dive in. Um, let's dive in. Um, first, I wanted to say I'm so happy to have you here. Um, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, well, we, we already met, right? And we've interviewed in the yes. past. Um, And I'm a huge fan of your work because you send a really strong, positive message around body image in a world that assumes that fat is bad and thin is good. Yeah, Um, that's for sure. Yeah, unfortunately. And so Ben, being in the food and fitness world myself uh, and being a a consumer of it as well, Um, I know how pervasive that myth is. So I just really wanted everybody to hear it and like hear more about what you have to say uh, and find out more about your approach. So welcome. Sure. Well, thank you so much for, you know, inviting me to take part. And I'm really excited about uh, being on the podcast. So uh, yeah, basically I work as a certified eating psychology coach since 2018 Um, and this is really a reconversion for me so i i didn't work uh, in the wellness industry before not at all and um, i decided to become a coach because of my own path into recovery from disordered eating and body image issues and so i decided to follow um, a training from the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, which is based in Colorado, because what I found interesting is that they really um, teach us to understand eating challenges as connected to work or money or relationship or family issues or life stress. You know, it's not just about the food and the exercise. It's really working almost on a life coaching level, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And then it's also really looking at um, how we can provide advice that is really sustainable and that looks at food in a really nourishing way instead of more of a, you know, kind of punishing way, I would say. And it's also looking very much not, not just about what we eat, um, but also who we are as eaters. And I really kind of recognize myself in that, but also I love the um, Institute for the Psychology of Eating because they are very much following the principles of health at every size. And so I what is, am uh, what is that? What's that? Because I the, that's uh, healthy at any size is like it's a whole movement, isn't it? So it is not healthy at any size. It is health at 
every size. Ah. It's quite important as a, as a distinction because we are not saying anyone is healthy at any size. This is not what we're saying. But we are looking at health outside of the weight-centric formula that people usually use in nutrition, for example. So we are really looking at how can we nurture health outside of aiming for a certain number on the scale or a certain BMI, for example. Because um, the founders of the movement, El Health Every Size, they realized they were uh, dietitians, right? And they realized that they used to see their clients coming and asking for a meal plan, going on a diet, everything was going fine. And then maybe two years down the road, they were back to their original weight. And it was just a conscious cycle, a, a constant cycle, sorry. So it was really, you know, disempowering to their clients and to themselves as dietitians. So they started really looking into the evidence behind dieting and restricting foods and all of that. And they found out that there's actually no good evidence um, they found out that, you know, over 95% of diets fail in the long run. So diets function, you know, to maintain a certain weight on the short term. But the reality is that they create a lot of issues on a long term basis. And that a lot of people who are going to go into dieting will find out that they either fall into the trap of diet cycling, right? So they go on a diet they lose the weight and then they feel very restricted or they feel like it's impossible to keep up with the routine if something happens in their life. And then they go back to eating too much because they feel so deprived. They gain all the weight back and more because this is a response of the metabolism. When mm. our metabolism feels deprived, it will go into, you know, trying to look for all the foods and people get obsessed with eating all the foods that they're that they usually are forbidden to eat. And, and then this cycle continues. And every time you go through the cycle, the reality is your health actually deteriorates. So the idea of uh, dieting for health, I think it's really a fallacy that unfortunately even the medical establishment keeps uh, perpetuating. Um, but also you have to imagine that dieting obviously is a massive industry, right? Yeah, of uh, course. We estimate, yeah, we estimate that only the weight loss industry is, um, if I'm not mistaken, the numbers by 2023 were like almost $300 billion worldwide. So it's massive. Um, and we're talking not only about the weight loss, but also, you know, all the uh, alternative foods and all, all the different uh, ways that you can, you know, try to modify your body. Um, and so these dietitians, they were really surprised that they looked into evidence and there was no evidence for dieting and restriction and following a meal plan and avoiding some foods and choosing other foods and all of that. And so they really tried to see, okay, what can we do for patients? What, how are we really going to bring health to these patients? And what they found is that the, the really looking at a weight-centric or size-centric model is not the response that is get, getting you to the best health. It's really looking at accepting that there is a d diversity of bodies and that all of us have a genetic set weight, right? That we really can't actually modify that much. Um, that you have to consider that health is a lot wider than just what you eat and how you exercise because you have to consider your mental health, your environmental health, like where do you live, you know, what kind of 
um, what kind of toxic situations can you be in, you know, in the environment, or uh, are you able to go and move outside and be safe? Are you financially, you know, able to take care of yourself in a, in a really positive way? How are your social relations? All of this sure. health. Sure. Um, and then they also looked at um, eating in a much more tuned way. So really eating for pleasure and well-being rather than eating to get to a certain am amount of calories or get to a certain amount of macros or whatever, but really reconnecting to the hunger and fullness cues in your body and also really conceiving movement more than exercise. So really conceiving movement as part of a joyful way to use your body um, so that again it is sustainable on the long term so yeah. in a nutshell that's health at every size <laughs> but see do you think that there's like there's a lot of people i think who um maybe are healthy you know maybe if you if you measured their blood panels and they did all these tests maybe they would be considered healthy yet they still want to to lose weight you know so they'll still uh, be restrictive with their diet or, you know, um, they're going to want to lose that extra five pounds or whatever, you know, um, mm -hmm. or exercise a lot. And, and um, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of people who do diets are like that, you know, they're not excessively unhealthy or, you know, uh, over or way overweight. They're like five or 10 pounds over the weight that they'd like to be like over, you know, like they're not the same weight as they were when they were 25. So, so they're like, right. oh. do you know what I mean? I think there's a lot of, um, anyways, I see like for sure in, in, in my environment or when you see it in a lot of kind of fitness classes or, uh, or whatever, you know, 30 uh, or 40 something women who are just, they're not fat or unhealthy. They just say, I want to lose that 10 pounds that, you know, so that I could fit back into the jeans I wore when I was 30, you know? Yep. Uh, so so we, what, we need what do you do with, with in situations like that? How do you advise people like that? So the first thing I want to say is that when I talk about genetic set weight, I'm not talking about the weights that you would like to be. Uh, mm -hmm. The genetic set weight is really something that we are born with. So, you know, it's really defined by our genetics. So a lot of the times, if you look at your parents, there's a good chance that you will most likely end up at a, at a similar shape and size as your parents. Mm -hmm. um, and the genetic set weight is really a weight where you don't have to worry about eating or exercising to maintain that weight. And it is not one number. It is actually a range, right? Because naturally, our bodies are mostly made of water, right? So uh, if you weigh yourself every day, you will see that you will fluctuate, even sure. though you haven't really changed weight. The reality is your, your weight will fluctuate. So what we see as a genetic set weight is really this range of, you know, I would say it's a range of about five kilos, for example, mm -hmm. that you kind of always fluctuate into when you live your best life and eat all the foods and move with joy, you know, when you're not constantly preoccupied by, I need to suppress my weight, I need to not eat this, I need to be careful how I exercise, I need to burn this, like, this is not your genetic set weight. If you are doing that, 
and you're actually getting to a lower weight and you're constantly thinking about food, for example, these are signs that you would probably be under your genetic set weight. Now, the reality is, yes, of course, a lot of people, and I, I think it's mostly women, but definitely we see men more, more and more on that same trend, they will tell you they would love to lose a bit of weight. And I think one of the questions that I ask people coming into my practice is saying, um, you know, why? basically, because um, a lot of the times I think it's something that is so ingrained in us uh, because our society is very fat phobic, right? Sure. This is the reality of things. If you are a person living in a larger body, we know that you will be discriminated. We know that you will have less chances of having a well-paid job. We know that people might mock you in the street. It's a reality. And we know that fat phobia is actually at the in intersection of other oppressions, right? And, you know, I discussed this recently with all the um, anti-racism movement uh, showing up. Racism is very much at the root of fat phobia. So these are big cultural trends that actually influence us, but that a lot of the times we don't realize we have internalized. Does that make sense? Yeah, how, how is racism at the root of, of fat phobia? So there's this great book that came out, I think about uh, two years ago or something like that. There's a researcher in the US called Sabrina Strings. Uh, mm -hmm. She did a whole research about basically what were the roots of fat phobia. And uh, she, and when I talk about fat phobia, it's not just you and me fearing being a bit heavier, it's really as a cultural symptom, right? Because mm. what we see is that all of us are scared of getting fat, right? Uh, and it's really a constant discussion point between people. It's how we bond in between women. It's how little girls get it from their mothers. Like it, it's just really part of the culture uh, and definitely the Western culture, which is, you know, a lot of the dominant culture that, that we hear about in the media and get constantly reminded on that thinner is always better. And yeah, yeah. her work was really... Um, where, when did these values actually become part of our culture? And what she found out is that it didn't come out of thin air, right? It came out of, it started uh, with the slave trade. Um, and the, at the same time, there were a lot of um, Protestant values being really uh, seen as, as the good way to do things. So the values of, you know, the slaves are, they, they are more dumb, they are unable to uh, resist their urges to eat and they are greedy and all of that stuff, which was at the time a racist way to actually differentiate between the people taking on colonies and the slaves, right? And, wow. then, and then on the other side, Protestant values, which are very much values of restraint, right? So you know, you can't let yourself go. Uh, you really have to be very um, considerate of the rules and, you know, follow exactly what you need, not more than what you need. You, you see what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 of, of course. Yeah. And basically the, these two uh, movements happened at a similar time. And this is when basically those values started 
really developing. And so what she says is that a lot of the fat phobia that we still experience today is actually rooted in, in those racist values effectively. So what I'm saying is when somebody says, I wanna lose five pounds because I wanna fit in my pre-pregnancy genes, it's actually more uh, than just a, a, a preference, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, because we are actually conditioned to want to be thinner. We are conditioned to believe that we look better if we look thinner. We are conditioned to think that as women, our power is all in the appearance. So I think a lot of the times when women come to me and say, I don't feel good in the body that I'm in, um, one, if they come for weight loss, I'm not the right practitioner for them because this is not what I do. Um, and two, if they come and say, I really want to accept myself instead of constantly trying to lose those five kilos, then this is, this is the right fit for me then this is really something that we can work on together. And we really work on dismantling a lot of those beliefs and really rebuilding the self-confidence and the self-esteem of the person outside of their weight, outside of their appearance, outside of thinking, I can't go out if I look this way. I can't join a social event if I look that way. I can't possibly put myself in a swimsuit around my friends, you know? Yeah. Really kind of growing out of that and, and showing that their identity is so much more than that. It, right. I mean, it's so hard to dismantle that because as you say, it's, it's really deep rooted, you know, and, um, and there's so many like positive associations with being slim and a lot of negative, negative ones with not being slim. And so, um, if you live in that society or grew up in that environment, which so many people have in Western culture, it's yeah. like, how do you begin to even dismantle that? Like, what do you do with somebody who comes to you and says, I like, I, I'm too obsessive. I can't, you know, I can't lose this extra 10 pounds or whatever, but I'm, I'm sick of, of, of this, you know, pressure. Being on, yeah. Being on the diet, diet roller coaster also, which is really exhausting, isn't it? Um, well, there's, uh, there's lots of different things you can do. The reality is it's, it's a set of practices that we put in place. So we really work on little things. And that's why I'm coming back to the kind of nourishing, doable, sust sustainable ways to really change your mindset. This is really what I find fascinating with the eating psychology coaching is that we look into little things that they can change in their everyday lives. Slowly, slowly. It's really baby steps, right? Mm. And slowly, slowly, we change the way they look at social media. We change the way they, we make sure that they eat enough because for a lot of dieters or chronic dieters or disordered eaters, uh, there's an issue with giving themselves permission to eat all of the foods, for example. And as long as you don't eat enough, as long as your weight is suppressed, then actually it also influences your psyche. So that is the number one point of call for me is that we will we will really look at how do we eat are there still fear foods are there forbidden foods and how we can really allow all of the foods because as long as we are constantly for you know saying i'm not allowed to have this or i shouldn't have that or even the, sometimes they eat the foods but then they feel so guilty afterwards that it actually negates any of the any pleasure, pleasure that they had, had. Exactly. Then, you know, it's, it's, it's not actually going to be of service for what we're doing. 
So we're really working on making sure that they have enough food. A lot of chronic dieters also, they might have issues with hormones, for example, uh, hormonal cycles. So that's also one of my specialty. I work in partnership with a, with a doctor back in the, in the US who works on uh, you know, lost periods. So a lot of the times if you have been dieting or over-exercising uh, or really being restrictive, you might lose your hormonal cycle and stop uh, having your period. So a lot of what I do is making sure that they eat enough and they allow themselves to have all the foods. Once that's out of the way, already your psyche is actually more able to react because otherwise it's, um, it's really your metabolism doesn't allow for that. So as long as you don't feed yourself enough, your metabolism will keep searching for food. <laughs> but so, yeah, yeah, you know, for survival. But see, I'm wondering though, um, like, so what do you, like, you, I, I know your story when, when you started kind of eating normally, um, you had gained weight, right? And because you were eating, like, what kind of food were you eating? You weren't on a diet. You weren't eating, like, just the four, like, you would have, cookies if you wanted it or cake if you wanted it and have a proper lunch and so it was really no restriction right when i was dieting yeah or what i mean when you were put on on this uh, when you did this program yours for yourself or if you have clients who, who come to you what kind of diet is that you know like when you put them on a program to make sure that they eat enough do you say just eat what you want or so it depends if it depends really on the cases so for women who have lost their periods they're effectively in semi semi starvation so yeah. they will need they will need to eat a lot like yeah. <laughs> um, then we go through you know they have to eat three meals three snacks every day and that's a minimum so they can't you know unfortunately we cannot trust uh, the hunger and fullness if you are still stuck in disordered eating so much that your body is half closed down, right? Because the reality yeah. is if your body is not allowing for your fertility to take place and for you to get pregnant, it means that your body believes that you are being starved. So in that case, then we work on getting them the three meals, three snacks, making sure that they eat enough, that they eat regularly, that they you know, start reintroducing all of the foods that were really problematic for them. That's what I would do. Now, with women that have more of a kind of difficult relationship with their bodies, if they already eat fairly intuitively, you know, it's less of a constant exercise to make sure that they eat enough, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But the yeah. reality is, the more you speak to clients in those um, in those situations, the more you're going to see that they might tell you they don't restrict, but they still do in ways that are a bit more sneaky. And that's something I've been quite vocal about as well. It's the whole wellness industry, right? Telling us dairy is really bad for you, like for everyone, right? And yeah. so I know I was definitely a victim of that, that I slowly, slowly removed whole food groups from my diet. And before I knew it, I was effectively a disordered eater because I was not allowing myself, even when we were, for example, in a social setting, I couldn't eat anything if it was not within my rules. So it is very sneaky and we have to be careful of that. And that's a little bit also the narrative I use with a lot of people, you know, overall and on my um, social media accounts and all of this is to say, you know, eliminating one food group, for example, 
it can be harmful. Like it's not all good. You know what I mean? Like we, yeah, we, hear, we hear a lot of messaging about, well, this is all bad for everyone. So you should never eat it. But the reality is we forget that for a lot of people, it can trigger the mindset of eating disorders. And we know that although not all diets will turn into an eating disorder, all eating disorders start with a diet. That's for sure. Yeah. Like any person dealing with anorexia nervosa or bulimia or binge eating disorder, any of those, they all started with a diet. And I think I want people to be aware that when you go into thinking, even just thinking, I'm not going to have dessert for, for a week or a month or whatever, I'm going to eliminate sugar. It actually makes a whole difference in your psyche and it can also have repercussion on your metabolism because we also need sugar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think we, a lot of the wellness industry demonizes whole food groups that are really necessary for us. And we see that as fads as well, right? So I was very much into the paleo movement, which was kind of high protein, high fat, low carb. And now we see vegans is the kind of new things to follow. And vegans obviously will have a lot of fiber and a lot of carbs, but maybe not so much fat or definitely not enough protein. So we see that it actually is not rooted in evidence. Do you see what I mean? It's just a fad, right? Yeah, I mean that, I'm sure people listening to this, some people will be like, no, 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 they'll get very upset because they're vegan or paleo or whatever, but I see what you mean. And, um, and it is, um, it is, it is a lot of diets are restrictive. I mean, that's the nature of a diet, right? It's to restrict. Um, I think the question to ask yourself is always how impaired you're going to be by following this diet. So if you are eating vegan or paleo and you're perfectly happy with it, you're not obsessed with food all the time, you're not constantly thinking about food, you're not restricting and binging, you're able to go out and maybe step out of your diet if there are no choices for you, then, you know, obviously go and do whatever works for you. I'm not one to judge. But the reality is that we know that a lot of people following those diets are also hiding a lot of disordered eating. And I know because I was one of them you know uh, yeah. and, and and the wellness industry kind of keeps this narrative alive because they bring out i'll give you an example it's the igg testing right so it's this test for food intolerances yes yes the blood test or yeah 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 so they do this blood test and they tell you here are all the foods that your body reacted to and these are the foods that you need to avoid for six months or a year <laughs> so yeah. that your body can reintroduce them. Well, we know now, and you know, this is a test I did maybe, a, I don't know, five years ago. And I was, you know, it came out with me being intolerant to like 40 foods. I mean, something huge. It totally uh, fed into my disordered eating because I was scared of eating anything. I didn't know what to eat anymore. Mm -hmm. So I didn't eat anything. And I kept losing weight. And obviously my psyche was getting worse as well because the less you eat, the less you're able to think straight. And so now, I mean, I have plenty of resources that say these tests are not rooted in anything scientific. If anything, IgG is showing your tolerance to foods. 
So I think we need to wonder, you know, who is benefiting from what I'm, what I'm trying to find out health-wise here? Because the, the reality is there are powerful industries benefiting from us restricting and, you know, avoiding and buying the gluten-free and buying the dairy-free and buying all the different alternatives and buying the supplements and, and really believing that it is so bad for you and you should never have it. So... I think this is, these are uh, mechanisms that I see in place all the time. And again, you know, paleo or vegan works for some of your listeners. Great. I'm not running after them, telling them they can't do it. But what I'm seeing is I see a lot of people coming into my, my practice feeling really overwhelmed by the situation. And they might have gone into veganism for ethical reasons. But again, we have to remember we have these big cultural situations around us that still tell us that thinner is better, that healthier is the right thing to do, and that health only looks a certain way, which is wrong. It's just not the reality of things. If anything, we know that people that are slightly in the overweight category, they are actually having a better life outcome typically in terms of health than people that are slightly underweight. But it's never talked about because the reality is it doesn't sell weight loss. Yeah, no, it's true. And there's so much associated, right? Like if you're being restrictive, like I know I used to not eat gluten, not eat sugar, not any, any of like those things. And some people, I think, like, like people like you would have thought, okay, she's being super restrictive and it's not healthy. But a lot of people would say, oh, you're so healthy. You're so yeah. good. You know? and, and, and so... So I think society also almost reinforces it, you know? Totally, totally. And, and, and I'm going to be very honest with you. I was looking for that validation when I was in that space. So yeah, yeah, I was yeah. one of the people thriving out of the, yes, I am a good person because I don't eat all these nasty things. Yes, I'm a good person because I can make brownies out of almond flour. You know, but, the, but over time you realize Food is not good, not bad. It's food. I mean, food has no morality. A pizza is not morally better than a bowl of rice. It just makes no sense. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. just, again, the construction that we did. And that keeps us very much actually stuck into those ways of thinking. And that basically, you know, people don't even question that they really think if I want to lose five pounds, it's because of my own preference. It's because I want to feel better. But the reality is they're just running the risk of developing an eating disorder and uh, ruining their metabolism and losing money and time and energy and disconnecting from their lives over five pounds. I mean, it just makes no sense. You know what I mean? So I think... So sorry to, to interrupt, I, but then what do you like, wh what's your stance on like, how do you find that balance between, you know, um, uh, it, it could be the weight, it could be even putting makeup on, you know what I mean? Like, how do you find the, 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 the balance between, oh, I want to, I look, I want to look nice and I want to feel good and, you know, and, and, the, and how do you balance that and that little bit of vanity that's healthy you know what i mean and 
and uh, and being restrictive. Like it's a fine line, I find. You know, sometimes you just a lot of people work out because they're like, oh, I feel better, and then oh, I'm a, a little bit, you know, I feel better in my I don't know in my clothes or whatever. But they're not obsessive about it. You know, they're not going to do it like twice a day and you know what I mean it's just a little yeah. the same way some people will put makeup on and to look you know nice one one day or, or whatever or do their hair or, or like when's when when do you know that you're doing too much as I said is the is the level of obsession yeah the level of impairment in your day-to-day -day life it's it's the inability to step out of the rules if you have food rules so, for example, you know, if someone is on a vegan diet and they're invited in another home and there might not be 100% vegan choices, you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. there might be a way that they can eat something fairly vegan, but maybe not 100% or maybe there will be a birthday, a birthday cake and, you know, obviously it might have non-vegan ingredients in there. It's the ability to say, I'm just still going to participate in the fun because this is the birthday of someone I really love. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it doesn't matter that I'm going to have a piece of cake today, uh, even though that might not fit into my usual routine. So uh, as long as you know, you're able to really not be obsessive about the rules and not be obsessive about how you look and what you weigh and how you fit in your clothes, I think these are really the signs. So uh, if, you know, taking, if, I mean, we've seen it during this confinement, right? Mm. Uh, people started being so obsessive about can't gain weight in the quarantine. We should not gain weight. We need to come out of quarantine, like transformed into this, <laughs> you know, thinner, better version of yourself. And that has exercised every day because you had the time and you had no excuses and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is it's forgetting that a whole world was thrown upside down. And obviously, you know, it might be that we need a bit of comfort right now. And that comfort might not look for everyone that, uh, like having a workout every five seconds. You know what I mean? So um, I think we need to really see how obsessive this all is. If you're really able to go about your life and be flexible and say, you know, what, what I really enjoy eating is this way. But, you know, when I'm going to my granny and she made a cake that I've loved since I'm a child and it has the ingredients that I don't eat anymore, I'm still able to enjoy that cake because I still enjoy it. And it, it makes her happy. She's, she's happy to see me. She, you know, I, I'm not going to do a whole fuss over that. If I'm able to go out with friends without the fear of having to eat different foods um, if I'm able to really let my body do what it needs to do um, these are all the signs that and a lot of people you know they know when they are too obsessed they know when the thoughts are really consuming their whole lives I don't know if you understand what I mean. Of course, I totally, I, I'm smiling as we're talking because of course I know I've been there and I'm still, yeah. you know, like still, I, I feel like, oh, sometimes I, I go, okay, I've had like a cookie every day now for the past few days, I need to stop, you know, or <laughs> I yeah. need to take a break, or, but for sure, exactly. we know, we know deep down, but it's it's it takes some courage, I think, to say, uh, I know and I'm going to try to change and do something about it because to be honest uh, for me and still to this day I feel like 
Hmm. I think I rather work out regularly than gain 10 pounds because it'll be easier for me to work out regularly than to accept gaining that 10 pounds. Do you know what I mean? And oh I yeah. A lot of people who are in the, in the fitness kind of, you know, wellness without being practitioners, you know, they're just, you know, normal people yep. are like that. I totally agree. I'm not saying this is easy work. Don't get me wrong. It is hard. <laughs> it's hard. It is really not. Um, and a lot of the people that I work with, they really came to a point where they're like, I can't live like this anymore. It just, you know, it is impossible. I feel so uh, small and stuck in this mental prison and I'm not available for other people that I love and I'm disconnected from the joy. And because the reality is, you know, when we, when we are unable to, a lot of those, okay, let me rewind a little bit. A lot of the ways that we will go into disordered eating, these are coping mechanisms, right? So a lot of my clients, for example, they are a bit A-type and perfectionist and, you know, they really like to please other people. And it's really the validation, as we discussed before in the wellness area, it's really validated because, oh, you're so good. You only eat X, Y, Z and all of that. So it's even harder for them because they have this coping mechanism that anytime they have a difficult emotion that they haven't learned how to deal with, well, they can say, it's okay because I'm going to control what I eat, how I look, how I exercise. And this is a way to really cope with difficult emotions. But actually, they suppress all their emotions. They never feel them. So when we remove that coping mechanism and we gain the weight or we see our bodies change because... Obviously, if we were suppressed for a long time or if we were stuck in a routine, there's a good chance that our bodies will actually change. We know that. Uh, We remove the coping mechanism. Suddenly, a lot of these emotions come to the surface and it can be really difficult to deal with that because you feel like, one, you're going against the society's rules, right? Mm, It's it's kind of a bit, it's a bit of a revolution because you're actually saying to society, ha, I'm not going to follow these rules anymore. But then also you remove a bit of that blanket that you used to have that you could hide behind, right? That you could say, ooh, I feel really stressed. I feel really anxious. I'm feeling really scared. So I'm going to exercise. I'm going to make a cake with almond flour. I'm going to make sure that I don't eat the cookie today because it just makes me feel a lot more secure, right? But the reality is in coaching, what I do is that I give them other ways to cope. So a lot of what I do, a lot of what I do is really working on how do we allow for these emotions to happen, but we also find ways to actually soothe them in a way that will be positive and and in a way that will really feed your soul without you having to destroy yourself in the process. So I work a lot with mindfulness. I work a lot Mm. with self-compassion. Self-compassion is a great way to build um, self-confidence. It's actually really proven scientifically to really be um, a good prevention of eating disorders. For example, people what are, do you that mean are by self-compassion. Like, there's techniques of self-compassion. Like, it's like self-love, or 
it's not exactly the same as self-love because I think it's difficult. I mean, the way that I, I work with people, if they come from a lot of body hate, I find it difficult to go straight into love, if you see what mm, I mean. Yeah. And for me, definitely in my recovery, there was a lot of, there was a whole time in my recovery when I, you know, before even I got, I got into coaching in my recovery, where, for example, I was hiding mirrors because it was really difficult for me to see myself. And the reality is over time, you are able to build more of a neutral relationship with your body image. And mm. if you keep working on it over time, then you can get into a place where you are really comfortable in your body, whatever, however it looks, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Self-compassion is, is, is actually, it's, um, it's a set of exercises and practices that you can do uh, if people are interested to know more about that, there's a great website called self-compassion.org that has a lot of the science behind it and the exercises that you can do. It, there's guided meditations, but there's also simple journaling exercises, for example. And there's just mechanisms that allow to deal with the uh, mean inner critic. Because yeah. if people know what we mean about, you know, dieting and wishing your body to be a different shape and all of that, there's a yeah. mean inner critic, right? There's this yeah. mean girl inside of all of us that says, look at you, you're so gross. And this is, you're such an idiot. And how could you do this? This is ridiculous. And when you think about it, you would never speak to someone else this way. Of course not. You would never, you would never dare speaking to somebody else who's yeah. hurt and tell them these things. But the reality is we do this to ourselves. So self-compassion is a great way to actually build a different way to speak to ourselves internally and mm. really soothe difficult emotions. Almost, I mean, the best example of self-compassion is when you suffer is thinking, how would I speak to a friend or a child that confides in me with the same issue that I'm facing today? So yeah. for example, if I'm saying to myself, I, have, I feel so fat, you would wonder if my 12-year-old girl, daughter, is telling me, Mama, I feel so fat. Would I tell her, well, yes, look at you. You're disgusting. It's because you ate that cookie and how could you? And, you know, you would never say that. You no. would say, well, honey, I'm, you know, I'm so glad you shared this with me because I, I want to hold you and, and show you that, you know, you're so wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, I, I see that you are hurt. And what can we do to take care of you? You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's um, that's a good example of self-compassion. So there are plenty of little ways to actually really uh, develop that ability to deal with difficult emotions in a much more healthy way and without mm. returning back to those usual Negative maladaptive patterns. coping mechanisms. Yeah. yeah. And what about kids? Now that you mention it, like a lot of our body image is formed very early on in life. Um, yeah. So what can we as, as parents or, or educators, like what can we do to make sure that our kids grow up with a positive or, or neutral kind of body image? And, and what do you see? Because I know a lot of parents go to see you to ask advice on that. So what's, what's your, what do you say? And also what are the common mistakes that we make as parents? Um, sure, sure. <laughs> so um, the first thing that you can do as a parent is actually modeling a positive body image. Yeah. So, so, you know, if, uh, if you know that you have your own unresolved issues, 
a first kind of way to ensure that your kids will feel good in their bodies is for you to feel good in yours. And it's obviously not the easiest, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's a lot, for a lot of us, it's, it's habits that are ingrained and, and, you know, that we have used for years or decades. So it's not easy, but so a lot of it is maybe, you know, avoiding talk about uh, fatness and dieting, if you can, avoiding dieting altogether. I mean, you notice now I'm not a big fan of dieting. Yeah. So, um, you know, really eating, allowing all the foods and having a diet where all foods fit. Um, a, a great way to uh, also make sure that you don't fall into that trap is not to comment on bodies. And it starts with your body, right? Yeah. So a lot of us women are... And I find that it's better with the next generation, I find, maybe already. But for me, I know I grew up with a mother who was constantly, you know, criticizing herself physically. Mm. And obviously, she didn't mean it in a way that it's going to uh, undermine my own body image. But this is just not. the only way that she knew, right? Yeah. So it was just so normal to look at herself in the mirror and think my hips are too large and uh, you know, my legs are too short and I'm too whatever. So uh, being able to actually not comment on bodies, whether it is your body or obviously your child's body or people in the street, you know, like not actually making comments on bodies and really focus more on your child's skills and abilities and kindness and creativity, all the stuff that makes them who they are but more inside than outside. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it just reinforces that the appearance is only a small part of who they are. Uh, yeah. The other thing is obviously no weight talk, if you can, right? Uh, no uh, talk about food. Food is also a big one. If you're going to talk about food, it's not going to be good food, bad foods. Because a lot of the times children, especially if they're, you know, uh, preteens, they believe that if you say this is a bad food and they eat it, that it makes them bad as a person too. It's actually just a normal mechanism because their brain is not able to dissociate the two. And so we want to really ensure that food is as neutral as possible. So what so we want to say is... how do you call it? Like, how do you call a bag of chips then? <laughs> you, you yeah, have, so a lot know. of the stuff you can use is you can use, for example, the nutritious versus fun foods. Or you okay. can call it the everyday foods and the sometimes foods. These are ways that you can really differentiate that obviously we're not always going to have a bag of crisps, but that it is still part of, of a balanced diet. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be outside of your diet. Bear allergies, right? I'm not telling you yeah, go and yeah, yeah. on almonds if, if your child is having... A, uh, anaphylactic shock you know but yeah. the reality is in a, in a normal balanced diet all foods fit and a great way to do that as well is to have access for your children to give access to your children to fun foods on a daily basis so I know this is something that a lot of parents will struggle with where they will say like what but I cannot possibly give them like fun foods every day but the reality is we know that if Children are not given regular access to some of those fun or those sometimes foods. They will actually probably binge on them when they have an opportunity, which is, you know, if they go to a party or they go to a friend's house where the food is less regulated and all of that stuff. So 
again, we don't want to create this kind of hierarchy of foods where we say this is really forbidden, this is so bad for you, you're never going to have that. And, and we want to really allow for some of those foods to be there. So if your child is really overweight, obviously you will have to also, you still have the control over what you offer in the house. So you might want to say, for example, okay, well, once a day, we can go and pick something fun in the store for you to, or you, you know, as the child also grows older, you can say, well, you can pick a little something every day. And I think it's also important to never put a child on a diet. Mm. It's really important. I think a lot of people freak out when their, ch their child is starting to put on weight and especially before puberty starts, which is totally normal especially for girls we tend to forget that girls actually put on a lot of weight and a lot of fat in preparation for menstruation so mm. when we actually freak out when our nine-year-old or a 10-year-old girl is suddenly changing and we freak out and we're like oh my god if she's eating too much and we need to eat differently and all of that we need to make sure that we do not put them on a diet we can we still control what we offer and another big part of what I do is tell parents have family meals. Yeah. We're all very busy, but family meals are really crucial, not just in the health, the physical health of your child, but also their mental health and even their academics. It's really interesting. There's a lot of research that shows that children who will have family meals at least three times a week, you know, parents sitting around the table with them and having a discussion without distraction, they will actually fare better with the decisions that they will make even as teenagers. They will do less drugs, they will try less alcohol, they will do better in school. This yeah. is like mind-blowing to me, right? Yeah, so yeah. as a parent, you are still very much in control of what you put on the table and how you organize the meals. So this is still the, the situation. And you have to think about that. If you have a child that is overweight, obviously you have to consider what you put on the table. But the reality is after that, it's the choice of the child as well. It's a method called the Division of Responsibility and Feeding. It was developed by a very well-known dietitian uh, called Ellen Satter. And mm -hmm. I really encourage people to look into that. It's basically you serve your uh, meals family style so that means you put the food in the middle of the table as a parent your work is deciding what goes on the table where and when so you okay. deal with the timings of the meals how the setting of the meal is going to be there's no distractions everybody's sitting together we're having a nice discussion the meal is pleasant but after that if the child eats and how much the child eats is really down to them Right. So if they want seconds or if they don't want the vegetables, <laughs> if, uh, it's, it's up to them. It's up to them. And the reality is, as long as you expose them to these vegetables, so if you keep offering these vegetables and you keep modeling that you eat them and you enjoy them, the reality is over time, they will also be more adventurous and be able to say, maybe I'm going to try this and maybe I'm going to integrate this into my diet. Because the more you're going to force, the less you're going to get a result. We've yeah, all tried that, yeah. right? Of course, Finish your of course. plate, one more bite, you have to try all of it. It doesn't get you anywhere because Absolutely. actually it makes more resistance. Yes. So I find the division of responsibility really a good way to go about with food. Now, if really you suspect that your child has 
an issue around food, whether it is not eating, you know, be extreme picky eating. I don't really like using picky eating, but at least people know what I mean. Yeah. Extreme picky eating, you know, ch children that don't want to eat anything but nuggets and stuff like that. Definitely go and consult, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a child dietitian that is really well versed in that. Ideally, somebody who also practices from a health every size perspective so that you don't fall into the dieting kind of way. Yeah. And then same if your child is overweight and you have concerns, it's also really helpful to maybe work with someone that, for example, applies the Ellen Satter rules because she has a great book about that as well. It's called Your Child's Weight, Helping Without Harming. And it really okay. talks about how in a lot of cases when children are a bit chubby or they grow up and we feel like they're a, bit, a little bit overweight, a lot of the times if they're left to their own devices and we keep offering balanced meals and regular meals and snacks and we don't restrict you know, some foods compared to others, then the child will over time, it will actually reach their normal weight. You know yeah. what I mean? A lot of the distortion with weight starts because we get into dieting. Dieting is the number one way that you're going to create issues with being overweight, issues with depression, with low self-esteem, with uh, issues around obviously a relationship with food that is balanced. So really avoiding dieting is, is really important for yourself, ideally as a parent, and also definitely for your children, because that, children don't need to diet. It's just they're growing, right? Yeah. So they're still yeah. developing. So, um, and then one more thing that I would like to, uh, you know, talk about is exercise. So um, again, I think if you have a child that is overweight, for example, um, you can definitely pay attention as to what you propose in the meals and making sure that these are as balanced as possible, giving them the access to a fun food, but obviously in a, you know, controlled way without having to discuss that, without having to say, well, we only give you one thing because, you know, you're already bigger than your brother and sister. Oh and my God. Don't want <laughs> That's horrible. I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's horrible, but a lot of the times it's just the anxiety of parents. It's not that they do it to harm. No, they, but, but the they're transferring is, their anxiety to the kids. Exactly, exactly. So no comparing, no mentions of, look, your brother eats so well and you can't eat well and all of that stuff. Um, but also exercise is really important in a child's life, right? And a lot of the times, you know, if children don't really i'm not too much into sports we tend to say well you know he's not the sporty type and he doesn't want to do this and that and we kind of give up but the reality is if you have a child that is overweight and you are a bit unsure about what to do movement is going to be really important in that child's life not only for their weight and health but also for their own self-confidence that they are able to do things with their bodies right yeah. um so really engaging in something that they find is fun and so it doesn't have to be, you know, a sport like football or basketball. If they hate it, there's no point. Um, but maybe they are really passionate about skateboarding and they yeah. want to try skateboarding or they want to do uh, rollerblading or they, I, I don't know, I mean, it, they want to go to the trampoline park, which is really yeah. a place that they enjoy themselves. So really conceiving exercise more as movement that yeah. is fun so that it is sustainable and i can tell you like if you take your child to the trampoline park this is a big workout like they won't feel that they are working out but you can tell like they will come out all sweaty and and it, it, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot. absolutely i've i have experienced that with mine <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I've tried to follow them in the end trampoline park and I can't, I'm just, uh, I'm unable to do that. But, and then I think it's also looking at health again, not just as food and exercise. It's really looking at uh, how much uh, sleep the children are getting, uh, how much time they spend in front of screens, right? Especially during this pandemic, it was really, really yeah. difficult yeah. to avoid too much screen time. Uh, having discussions with them about emotions, you know, not shutting them down when they come and say they're sad because again, it's just the coping mechanisms for parents. You know, we don't like our children hurting. So a lot of the times when children will come and say, oh, this happened in school and I feel really lost and I don't know what to do. We'll say like, oh, you're so sensitive. Just get over it, you know, or, or oh, we might boy. just get upset or, but the reality is make space. For those emotions yeah. and you know let them see that if they I mean I, I know it's not easy uh, I know I'm, I'm super triggered by my children's emotions it's really a work that I've been doing for a while now uh, allowing those emotions because it's not something that I grew up with um, and in this pandemic I could see a lot of the grief coming out my children were really grieving a lot of the play dates and the school time yes. and the fun trips and all the stuff and I, I had to take hold that space for them and to say, it's hard. You are in pain and I cannot fix it. Yeah, and absolutely. We will have to feel it and take care of ourselves. What could be a nice way to take care of ourselves? But really allowing for that emotions management is also a nice way to prevent, for example, issues around food and exercise, where again, we go back to food and exercise can become a coping mechanism when we don't know how to deal with our emotions. Yeah. And, but so how do you, okay. So that's for, for kids, like, you know, and I, and, and, and I understand that, but like, what about teenagers, you know, like what about teenagers that they get exposed to with social media to like high school friends and, you know, they get this exposure from their external environment um, that may make them feel inadequate, you know, and they may feel yeah oh, I'm fatter than him or her or whatever. And oh, I, so-and-so is going on a diet. Maybe I should too. Or, or, or like I see um, with boys, um, they will say, okay, oh, I'm going to the gym to pump iron because so-and-so is pumping iron, you know? So how do you deal with that? Because you kind of, you know, they're, they're not small anymore. You can't control everything anymore than what you put on the table. I mean, you can control what you put on the table, but still they're more, they're, they're, they're older. So how do you help them? How do you help them navigate through that? So the first thing I'm going to go back to is the family meals. I agree with you with teenagers. You don't control as much uh, what they eat, for example, but you still provide a lot of the meals that your teenagers are going to consume. Right? So I would say, let go of what you can't control. <laughs> You know, when school, uh, when they're in school, when they're with their friends, they're going to have this, they're going to have that. Just let it go. Don't even like obsess over it. But you are still able to work on the family meals. And actually for teenagers, it's even more important because having pleasant family meals mean that they have this environment that is safe, that they can come back to and where they can have discussions. So you providing nice meals every night or at least you know i know uh, for a lot of parents they they work long hours or they're not able to always be there at meal time but even three times a week can make a big difference 
So I would say this is something you can still apply with teenagers that is really, really powerful, as I mentioned before. The second thing I would say is you need to listen instead of talking. So uh, a lot of what happens with teenagers is that, you know, we, they, they are craving also the, the, the validation and the acceptance and all of that stuff. And we need to really get a little bit in their world. So if they are struggling with something, they compare or they feel like, you know, their body is not um, good enough or whatever, before you say anything and before you say, okay, then let's get on a diet. Okay, I'll get you that subscription to the gym. Okay, I'll, you know, let's put a filter on your photos so you feel better about it. These are all band-aids they're not actually yeah. solving any of the issues so the main thing is to really listen and to really include yourself in what is going on in your world right yeah. and i think a lot of the times we get a bit we get a bit scared we we think oh now you know they're bigger and they have their private world and i don't want to disturb and blah 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 but the reality is they still need parents so much they still need that validation. They still, they won't tell you, but they still need it desperately. So what, uh, you know, what is a nice way to do, um, what is a nice thing to do with teenagers is really, for example, if they're going to say things about their bodies that are really difficult to hear, is not just to say, oh no, honey, you're not fat, you're beautiful. But it's really saying, well, tell me more. What happens? You know, what why are you saying that if they say that they don't feel comfortable in the body that they have or that they say that, you know, they feel constantly like they're comparing and they're not good enough. It's really kind of opening up that dialogue and really understanding what is hiding behind that. Um, um, you know, my eldest is only nine, but I know that when he comes home and he's really angry and he's lashing out at me, for sure something has happened at the school that will come out eventually if I listen, if I give that space for him to express his feelings. And the other thing is with um, teenagers, you really need to get into media literacy. It is so important to have these discussions about social media, imagery, uh, yes, what is yes, fake, yes. what is real. Uh, all of the images are retouched and filtered and photoshopped. What you see is not at all the reality. And it's a big discussion you need to have with those, with those kids, even as early as, you know, nine. I mean, I'm already having these discussions with, with, with my nine and my eight-year-old where I don't kind of point it specifically, but sometimes we watch something together and I'm going to say like, hey, did you notice this? I mean, it looks a bit funny, right? She doesn't even look human anymore. Um, and then we will look into, oh, why is that? You know, well, these are these different tools that people use to transform their images um, and, and really kind of making them understand that what they see is far from reality. It's really, really important. There are great documentaries that you can watch with older teenagers. Um, you know, things like misrepresentation is one that jumps into my mind. There's one also called Embrace that is really about body positivity that might be positive for uh, older teenagers. And really just, you know, watch something with them, discuss with them what they think, what you think, how, you know, just keep an open mind. And, and really be the sport of safety that they can come back to when they are confused, when they are unsure, when they feel invalidated. 
Yeah. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. But uh, yeah, it's it's not easy though with the social media to to you know if you can tell them and they'll get it. But sometimes social media is like, well, it's the person next door. It's not even a celebrity, you know? It's like, oh, the neighbor, yep. she looks amazing yep. and I don't look amazing. And you know what I mean? <laughs> and and so it's it's tough. But, uh, but it's, yeah. It's, it's tough on all of us, right? Mm. So we have to deal with the constant flow of imagery. Yeah. And I think we also have to teach our teenagers, you know, how much of what we see is actually part of the person, right? So the, the, social media is really pushing us to self-objectify. It's pushing yes, us yes. to say we are only an appearance. We are only a certain weight. We are only uh, a, a good person if we look good in a bikini. Yeah. But how much of that actually matters? And this is a discussion to have with the teenager as well. And, you know, not in a way that you want to influence them and push them, but in a way that actually plants a seed in their brain and that they can say, ah, okay, well, I mean, you know, maybe I don't agree with mom at this stage, but still I kind of get what she means. You know, we are, I am obviously more than just the image I portray on social media and the neighbor that I'm going to see looks amazing. I don't know what's happening in her life. Maybe she's very depressed. It doesn't yeah, no, say of course, of that. course. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. So I think dealing with comparison is something that we can talk about and something that, um, you know, the beauty of social media is that you can curate your feed and only keep the stuff that makes you feel good. And this is something I think teenagers could totally do too. And we can say to them, well, you know what? If this is bothering you, I mean, I don't really see the point in following that person, right? I mean... What do you True. get out of it? If you, if you feel bad every time you go on the Victoria's Secrets uh, account, but then maybe stop. you don't go yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So, yeah. Okay, well, listen, I, I think this is good for now. I think it's a good, like, full-on introduction on, on the psychology of, of eating. Um, but Great. if somebody wants to know more, wants to reach out to you, um, do you give coaching sessions like virtually or how like yes. yeah do you work with people worldwide and how does yeah. it work yeah we always figure it out uh sometimes i have to wake up very early or go to bed very late but yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's still uh, i mean it's just a love that i'm passionate uh, a love it's a job that i'm passionate about so it's, it's no big deal yes um the best way to contact me is through my website uh yeah. it's w- w.beyondbodyimage.com, sorry. And uh, yeah, your website, because your website has so much like resources, like you've got a lot of links and, 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 and resources. And it's not just your blog, but a lot of the stuff that you, the work that you refer to, you know? Um, so I think it's it's a it's a it's a good kind of place to go as well for people who want more information about it. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I do spend quite a bit of time also kind of curating what's out there, what's interesting, what people should know more about, you know, um, 
And I think there are so many practitioners doing the same job that I do uh, or doing it, you know, in different niches that could yeah. be more interesting for, for some people. Because I think coaching is also very personal. You really need to connect to the person uh, sure. that you're going to choose as a coach. So, you know, uh, my first consultation is always free because I want for people to really be able to catch up with me and see how they feel and do they feel comfortable and so their questions and all of that stuff. And some people will say, well, I didn't really feel like we clicked, you know, and that's totally fine, but they might click with somebody else that I'm referring to on my website. Um, and then also like, I, th I find that sometimes you start on the body image work and then you end up wanting more resources that you realize are in the body positivity uh, arena, for example. Uh, or you will want to look into feminism or you know it's it's there's a lot of in intersections right between all these different topics and so it felt really important that I that I put these resources and the other thing to mention I don't know if you do have followers that speak French but my my website is bilingual so yes okay it's I saw English that. and French so uh, there are also resources because sometimes people don't really know where to go if they suspect they have an eating disorder, for example. So I also list down uh, free, um, you know, resources and NGOs that work in that field into prevention for eating disorders and getting the treatment, like where do you go to find treatment? Uh, where do you go to find support when you feel really uh, alone and, and, you know, you know that there's a problem, but you don't really, you can't really talk to anyone in your direct circle about um, so yeah, I, I try to list a lot of different things and I speak also obviously about period recovery. Uh, I speak about body neutral parenting. I speak about body image, mental health, and then I have a little section about skin acceptance because a lot of my triggers were, uh, suffering from acne and oh. I tried and tried for years and years to solve my acne naturally. You know, that, uh, uh, that thing is it's uh, eliminate all of the foods that will cause breakouts and stuff like that but the reality is it just got me uh, in a worse place um, physically and mentally and so I speak also about how to accept the fact that we don't have perfect skin and that there's a good chance that you know a lot of us live with that every day and it's fine we just you know it's um it's also a stigma for sure, if you think of size stigma and weight stigma, there's definitely a stigma related to acne and skin conditions. But um, yeah, that might also be something that people are interested to look into, like ways to cope with the fact that I don't have perfect skin um, and how not to fall into dieting or disordered eating on the back of solving my skin issues. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, no, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I know. I, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. I, I loved speaking to you the first time last year, but time was even better. So I'm glad I was able to, you know, share this with, with everyone. Um, and yeah, I'm hoping I will see you soon. Yeah, definitely. Me too. I hope we can finally, uh, you know, get out and meet people like we used to. Yes, at some that point. will be nice. That will be nice soon, soon.
Yeah, and uh, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate your support. It means uh, a lot to me. It's my pleasure. Thanks again. <laughs> Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.